Welcome to the BIV interview. My name is Kirk LaPointe. I'm the editor-in-chief of BIV. And um, our city is enveloped in a crisis that crept up on us. It spread into the community across gender, income, personal circumstance. Uh, it amplified the perplexing commodity that we have now of addiction in our midst. Uh, it challenged authorities to contain it in a new way. And we've lost now thousands of lives in British Columbia in a remarkably short span to it, including several hundreds in this city alone. If those in business or in public life or in sports or in the arts thought this might be perhaps victimizing others, uh, they're now most mistaken. Very likely at the outside, you know now somebody who knows somebody who has taken drugs and found them laced excessively with opioids. What we do about it, what uh, we do from here, how this community can, in a lot of ways, save itself, is a discussion I thought valuable uh, to a program like ours, which does focus on business, but has to have its relationship to the community and understand, even um, in some terms, the not just the social, but the economic impact of, um, of crisis. Um, my guest has immersed himself in the equivalent of a masterclass for months and months in order to write his recent book, Fighting for Space, How a Group of Drug Users Transformed One City's Struggle with Addictions. Travis Lupic is a journalist who writes for the Georgia Strait. Uh, he's spent a lot of time on this, and he joins me now. I thought we could have a good long discussion about this. Thanks Thank so much for having me. Thanks a lot for doing this. Um, I, I'm not sure where to start in discussing all of this, but maybe you can help me understand where you started in deciding to research it. Um, I've been a reporter at the Georgia Strait for uh, a little over 10 years now, uh, minus uh, a leave of absence. Um, and so in uh, 2012, 2013, I was covering politics in Vancouver, you know, just doing my daily grind. Mm -hmm. And um, people started dying. Um, drug overdoses uh, started uh, occurring in Vancouver and BC with uh, greater frequency. And it was slow at first. Um, for the first couple of years, uh, there there was a notable increase, but but it was gradual. Um, but the curve got steeper and steeper, and as more people, um, as more and more people were dying over the last five years, it um, sort of organically um, became a, a niche beat for me at the Georgia Strait, uh, who, which was uh, good enough to to give me the time to stick with that subject. Yeah. Uh I, I could take a lot of um, roads from your answer there alone, but uh, um, it, how did you then begin to apprehend that this might be something more than just a, a slight rise, that there might be a, a, a phenomenon taking place here? Well, I'll say this with hindsight. Um, by 2015-16, I'd be covering, I had been covering what we were already calling the fentanyl crisis for a few years. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was already scary. Um, for lack of a better word, a normal number of fatal overdoses in British Columbia is about 20 a month. And from 2011 to 2013, that had ticked up to 40, 50 a month. Um, so it had doubled you know, within a couple of years, which was quite scary. British Columbia doesn't have a massive population. No. So, so we were calling it the fentanyl crisis. Um, we were beginning to even use words like unprecedented. Right. Um, and then there was the winter of 2016, um, and, and and something changed beyond what had already changed. Fentanyl had already arrived, and the, the deaths per month had jumped from 20 to 40. In the winter of 2016, from October to December, they jumped from 40 to 140 per month. Yeah. So it... it it had been gradual, and then it was really fast in just three months, from 40 to 140. And by that time, we'd already been dealing with fentanyl for a few years, remember. So um, even though we thought we were in a crisis, that, that was that winter, 2016, when, when I realized there was really, really something awful happening here. Yeah, something awful happening here and, and expansive, uh, not just in, in numbers, but probably in the um, scope of the community that it was suddenly touching. Yeah, a few years ago, every, everybody in BC, I think, um, knew someone who knew someone who was affected by fentanyl. And uh, a couple of years ago, I noticed that barrier, barrier had been broken down. Um, at this point, you know, when you get 
people speaking openly. Um, it, it's really everyone who now knows somebody directly who's been affected by this crisis. Yeah. Um, and it, like you said at the at the top, it cuts right across economics. It cuts right across ge- geography. Um, everybody in BC has been affected by this at this point. So, so is there a, a generalized way, Travis, of discussing uh, how this amount of opioid got into our community and then got used by so many people? almost all at once. Is there, a, is there a, 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 a narrative for this? It's largely, um, fentanyl is largely an issue of economics. Um, the most common question I get is uh, why are dealers selling their customers a product they know will kill them? Won't that eat into their customer base and then therefore hurt the dealers? Um, the, the answer to that question is economics. If you invest $5,000 in, in heroin, an opiate similar to fentanyl, you get about 100000 120000 back on the street. It's a good, good profit margin. Mm-hmm. But if you invest the same $5,000 in fentanyl, you get about $1.1, million, $1.2 back on the street. So it's not a question of adding one or two zeros by switching from, fe- from heroin to fentanyl. You add a whole bunch of zeros. You add so many zeros that drug dealers really can kill their customers all yeah. day. Yeah, I was going to say it. Your business model almost budgets for death. It does. Wow. It, it's it's the and and it's a result of economics. Ah. Wow. Okay. Um, what did you think you knew, and what did you figure out you had to learn? <laughs> um, I've learned a lot over the past few years covering this. Um, don't judge. I guess would be the first one. Hmm. Um, most of the people using opiates, risking their lives with fentanyl, who I've interviewed. Um, well, none of them are doing it for fun. Um, they're, they're doing it because they're treating pain. Um, some of them, it's physical pain. Some of them, it's emotional pain. And if you, if you really understand that, that they're treating pain, um, then what you're doing by criminalizing their addiction, their drug use, is you're you're victimizing people who are already victims. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a victim. You know that's what prosecuting and putting somebody in jail who's a long time opiate addict is. You're victimizing somebody who is treating pain. Um, and after you you get to that place and sort of really comprehend that, um, after I did, I started to question a, a whole lot of other um, beliefs that held for a very long time. Um, drug use is bad. There has to be a penalty for it. You know, that was that was a belief yeah. I held for the first 30 years of my life. Yeah. But watching the consequences of that response, criminalization, and how much more harm it can do, um, I began to really question um, question the assumed logic behind it. If our If our goal is punishment, then yeah, let's stick with this. But if our goal is something different, um, recovery, for example, then you do have to then you do have to challenge that criminalization model. Hmm. I, I want to explore policy with you, and I want to explore uh, maybe how our attitudes are being reshaped. But maybe I, I can I can cut it off, but with one other question on this, and then we can explore some other areas. And that's it, 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 you talked about how you had to work on your own perceptions and all of that. Um, was one of them the sense that um, people should be just taking more responsibility for themselves you can't subtract that from conversations about drug use because you know um uh, heroin is not this all-powerful drug like it's portrayed in the movies if you try heroin once most of us are not going to get addicted um i know that's sort of you know how the common belief that heroin is so powerful um but it's not actually you can do it a few times and you're not going to go into terrible withdrawal so there is an element of personal responsibility um but especially in the population that, that i've covered the last few years the downtown east side um we're talking about people uh who have been using for a very long time um where if there was originally a question of choice in drug use that that had faded away along quite a, quite a few years ago as their addiction became more severe you're also talking about people with severe mental health issues yeah um especially with women you're you're talking about people who have suffered a lot of abuse over the years yeah. and they're responding to that pain generational trauma 
Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Especially yeah, with the indigenous community that we have, and the, and the indigenous community has been affected by this crisis mm-hmm. uh, so you know beyond the. And yet, um, the expanse of this crisis has reached into what you would perhaps call the recreational user, right? Inadvertently, under not understanding that the drug you were trying on the weekend after not using drugs for a couple of years or something suddenly had this new menace amid it. Yeah. In, in, um, in BC, the fentanyl problem began with more entrenched users, largely in the downtown East side. But, but as you said, for sure it has expanded beyond there. Um, and that, that's scary because, um, long time drug users are a little bit prepared a little bit more prepared for this um you know the banker or the lawyer using cocaine once a month um, will be far less prepared um physically as well you know that they don't have the tolerance um that a long-time drug user will have and then so that that yeah. cocaine laced with fentanyl will hit them will hit them a lot um a lot harder often deadly um but i also think that that we underestimate the amount of pain that's also um that recreational so-called recreational users are also dealing with um because there's a lot of really troubling indicators across north america that have risen alongside growing numbers of overdose deaths you know um prescriptions of antidepressants um suicides have increased right alongside fatal overdoses mm-hmm. um north america is dealing with a lot of pain right now and that, i think that's the larger issue underneath this whole fentanyl crisis yeah yes and and um in in the case of perhaps a, an audience like the one we would have, um, people who are soothing um, by virtue of recognizing that they are either um, under great duress, um, that they're experiencing failure, uh, that they're uh, they're not achieving their dreams, and so drug use of some sort, like any other self-soothing, is a form of momentary escape. Yeah, especially with opiates. You know, the most um I've asked a thousand people over the years what it feels like to do heroin and you know, nine hundred times I've heard it feels like a hug. Um mm. so there there's a reason that, that people in pain are going to opiates. Yeah. They're looking for a hug Can and I they have you, have you ever what, what have you ever tried have you tried anything to that level? In my my my, yeah, my younger days I experimented. Yeah, yeah. Um when it was a lot riskier than it is today. Yeah. Um knowing what you know now, like you want to steer clearer. Oh, it, dr- drugs are a very different game uh, than they ever were, yeah. than they were five years ago. Sure. Um, you, you know, I've always had a pretty open mind about drug use, and you know, I've, I've had a pretty relaxed attitude. You know, if, if somebody in university wants to take ecstasy on the weekend, whatever, I don't think it's really going to hurt them. I don't know if I say that anymore. Um, drugs are a different game. Hmm. Hmm. So, what is it that you wanted to really explore with a book like Fighting for Space? So Fighting for Space largely covers the years 1990 to 2015. 2016 is where it ends. Mm-hmm. Um, not just British Columbia, but North America is in the grips of this opiate crisis that we're talking about. There were 14-something, 1,400 overdose deaths in um, British Columbia last year. There were 64,000 drug overdose deaths in the United States in 2016. It's a number so large it begins to lose meaning. Yeah. Um, so BC is in this with the rest of North America. Vancouver has been through a crisis like this before. You'll remember, I think, you were at the Vancouver Sun through the 1990s. Um, We learned a lot of lessons responding to that crisis of the 90s. We made a lot of mistakes, um, but we learned a lot of lessons, and we won a lot of victories as well. Um, So the idea with the book was to sort of give something to North America that says, we're we're all dealing with this problem right now. Vancouver's been through a similar problem before. Uh, Maybe there's something we can learn from that experience through the 90s and 2000s, and maybe we can all... Uh, save ourselves some time and save some lives. Yeah. Well, what were the lessons we learned? One of the big ones was listen to the drug users. Um, when when that overdose crisis of the 90s hit Vancouver, nobody had ever asked a drug user what they want in the way of drug policy or even health care. There wasn't a single clinic in the downtown east side in that 20, block ra- 20 square block radius. There wasn't a single clinic. Um, drug users were not receiving health care in those days. Um, they were completely ignored, sidelined, marginalized to such an extreme extent that they weren't even allowed indoors. And the story I tell in the book is how they demanded a voice. Mm-hmm. They said, we're dying down here, and one person a day in this community is dying of an overdose. We want to say um, in how the government responds. They weren't given 
that voice. You know, they they took it. <laughs> it was not yeah, an easy. Well, well, and that and that's a that's a big element of what you wrote about is is um, how voiceless um, these people who were suffering and and actually not uh, inconsequentially trying to get themselves out of a trough. Yeah, the the first meetings they held um, were in Oppenheimer Park in a park not far from here. Yeah. And that's because they were not allowed indoors. They could not find anybody, any nonprofit, nobody who would allow them to give them a space inside to have a meeting. Yeah, to strategize about how I mean that's, to get them off the street. That and, says the extent, you know, that shows the extent to which they were marginalized. Yeah. Um. So they said, "We want to say." They demanded it. They marched in the streets. They occupied city hall. Um. You know, they went on television, and eventually took about 10 years of constant, you know, concentrated work. But eventually, they, they did get a fairly large say in drug policy. And I think that, and what they asked for, um, things like injection sites, and, and they actually worked, the overdose numbers fell. And so I think the lesson that, that jurisdictions across North America need to take from Vancouver of the 90s is listen to the people who are most affected by this crisis. But what do you think changed in this city uh, that to, to effect that kind of, uh, of shift? Education was a huge piece of it, and education was a conscious um, piece of what activists were doing in the 90s. Like what? What kind of education? Uh, so the, the Portland Hotel Society, a nonprofit housing uh, provider in Vancouver, was a big part of this. Um, when they when they took over a street and blocked traffic and that sort of thing, they didn't just you know make a scene. Um, they invited people uh, from from Europe. Uh, police officers who were supportive of injection sites that were already operating in Europe, and they invited the you know mayor of Frankfurt and important people who wear suits, mm-hmm. and they connected them with people at City Hall in Vancouver, and it, and it was sort of this realization um, the activists had: we we think we have the right ideas, but is anybody going to listen to us? Let's be pragmatic about this. So They're, they had to bring people in suits to get people in suits to listen. That was a big part of it, yeah. a conscious part of it. Yeah. Um, when you take a look at what that did in changing the um, the attitudes of this city, and yet you look at across the country, where attitudes are in many places quite different. Yeah, I was just visiting um, some sort of grassroots inj- uh, illegal injection sites in Toronto and Ottawa a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago, um, and they were telling you know, telling me you know the police still come by every you know every couple weeks. Um, not arresting people, but making everybody feel really uncomfortable, letting them know, you know, you're doing something we don't like. This low-grade harassment Mm -hmm. um, that you don't uh, see to the same extent in Vancouver anymore. Um, We have to, you know, Vancouver really pats itself on the back for its progressive policies towards drug use. And and I think, you know, we deserve to. But we can't forget that it took us 20 years to get here. Yeah. And other jurisdictions are just starting to have these conversations that we had through the 90s. Do you... Do uh, have you come to understand what it is about this city that seems to bring so many drugs here? That's a really, really good question. Um, one I've thought of a lot and haven't uh, totally arrived at answers. Um, we're a port city, and there's there's a higher a higher portion of drug use in just about any port city. You know that's where drugs are transported through, and there's always a bit leak leakage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in Canada we're a bit unique in that our, our um, disproportionate drug problem actually has a lot to do with something as simple as the weather. We're the only city in Canada, major urban center in Canada, that doesn't freeze freeze for five, six months of the year. Right. Um, so Vancouver does have a disproportionate... People describe even the homelessness piece yeah, that's to the, our climate. Which, and, 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 and homelessness is related to drug use. Yeah. Um, and you know, Vancouver carries a burden for all of Canada, really. We do uh, care for a disproportionate number of the entire country's homeless population. Yeah. And there is some drug use that comes with that. Um, through the 1960s, 70s, 80s, all of North America went, underwent a process of deinstitutionalization. We emptied these sort of old school asylums um, that you see in, in horror movies and that we sort of thing. We group homes. We did uh, all kinds of things in order to bring people into the community to help them reintegrate. We did a lot, but we didn't do enough. We left a lot of those mentally ill people out on the streets, and sadly, drug dealers found them, and that's part of this problem as well. Yeah. Um, does it beguile you as a uh, as a Canadian, for instance, to uh, to see that what we're doing in Vancouver is we're carrying, a, as you put it, a large part of the country's uh, issue in all of this? People are coming here from all parts. These are not all native Vancouverites, um, and yet. The rest of the country doesn't, well, the rest of the country seems quite content to let Vancouver hold it, hold the bag. Yeah. 
And uh, to Vancouver's credit, to some extent, so does Vancouver. Um, we we actually, you know, I know that there is, you know, an uproar every few years about the amount of tax dollars that go to, to nonprofits and social services in the downtown east side. Yeah. But but for the most part, um, I think Vancouver residents are incredibly generous with the amount of our tax dollars that that, that go to these issues and and all of Canada's homeless population. Um, it uh, I think it's a justified point of pride for our city. Yeah, and yet nobody really appears to have, uh, you know, the magic bullets here. No. Um, well, the magic bullet, you know what the magic bullet is? It's housing. Um, there's a social policy called housing first. It's beginning to yeah. gain traction across North America. It says if you put someone in a home first without condition, you create enough stability that they can then go the next step and begin stabilizing their mental illness. They can begin tapering off their drug use. Um, and, and there's a fair bit of science and study behind it at this point. Um, and, and Vancouver really, long before we were calling it Housing First, Vancouver was pioneering this strategy way back in the 1990s. That was largely the Portland Hotel, mm-hmm. Portland Hotel Society. And then that's a big part of the story I tell in the book as well. Yeah. Um, the problem now is space. Um, you know, if, even if we wanted to give everybody a home, um, Vancouver's in this intense, intense housing crunch, like, you know, like a few jurisdictions in North America. Um, so that's a challenge. The land value has uh, has crept away from the economics of um, of the housing first type of um, of model, unless there is just what seems to be a very significant subsidy. And yet, you would have studied this as well. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a false economy to worry about that subsidy because what you're really doing is is heading off of the pass a, a far larger subsidy. Yeah, if you're worried about time. if you're worried about tax dollars going to social housing, um you you need to understand that you're going to spend a lot more of your tax dollars down the road. Yeah. Um it, it cost a it cost a fortune to send ambulances to the downtown east side every day in the Yeah, I, someone told me it's it's like it's almost like a $10,000 call kind of thing. It's uh yeah, you I mean you, there's a lot of um uh, they call them, you know, million dollar men. Um, these patients who we literally spend a million dollars a year on sending them through the emergency room once a week, sending you know, sending them through the prison system and and through the courts and taking up police officers' time. It's really expensive to not give people social housing who really honestly do need it. Yeah, but as a journalist, Travis, I mean, uh, um, you know, most journalists are when they encounter something that appears to be so self evidently addressable and yet they don't see it addressed uh you know it it, it can be really crazy making how, how, did, it, it how did you kind of keep, how did you keep yourself out of that deep frustration i don't know if i do um you know it is a complicated problem like you know i, I described housing as a silver bullet but of course housing is actually a very complicated issue um and it, it's a problem of scale. You know, we've we've let this problem fester in Vancouver for so many, I mean, decades really now, um, that it's become a, a sort of intractable, tough one to solve. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, it's not a silver lining, but but um, you know, there is this amazing sense of community in the downtown east side too. I've lived in, sure. uh, I've lived in a few different areas of downtown Vancouver now. You know, the West End and sort of around the library, and now I'm in the downtown east side. Um, and the downtown east side is the only place I've ever lived where I'm if, almost every day stopped walking down the street. And somebody I know wants to stop and chat. There is this real sense of community that I think is often born out of hardship, and so that also exists in this in all this. Yeah. Um, when you take a look at uh, the way that we are now addressing symptoms, at least, what kind of progress do you think has been there in the last little while? The, the, the you know, the, the rescue missions nightly, daily, I guess, and on our streets. We've done, um, we've done some really great things in response to the fentanyl crisis. The, the government was late, but they're in the game now. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, in December 2016, um, we opened more than 15 overdose prevention sites. These are these are really sort of bare bones places where people can bring drugs and inject under supervision, so that if they overdose, there's someone there to catch them. Um, the provincial government saw more than 15 of these sites open in five business days. I've never seen government work that fast on anything, you know, yeah. let alone something as complicated as injection well, sites. Pop up sites, right? Yeah, they. I mean, it, it was an, it was amazing. They showed it can be done. Mm-hmm. 
um, making test strips available for fentanyl now before anybody else in North America, um, sending, you know, patrols through the alleys. and We've done some really, really great things. But it all falls under this umbrella called harm reduction. Um, now, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an open advocate for harm reduction. That's what the entire book is about. Yeah. But and and Vancouver's, but harm reduction is not the solution to the opiate crisis. Harm reduction is, you know, it's a cliche, but an apt analogy is a finger in the dike. If your dike has sprung a leak, you definitely want to put your finger in there to plug it. So we have to do harm reduction. And you know, you're gonna can have a positive outcome there. The dike will leak less water, but you're not actually repairing the dike. And we had in the fentanyl crisis, we haven't even really begun the conversation about repairing the dike. Mm. Um, we've done so much on harm reduction and we should be applauded for it, but we've barely even begun the, the, a conversation about the sorts of measures that would actually begin to turn the whole ship around and begin to solve the fentanyl crisis. We barely even talk about treatment. Well, yeah, treatment. And I mean, I, I don't mean to um, make the, an inappropriate analogy, but I mean, when, when we talk in our city about our real estate or our runaway real estate, and we don't talk about the flight of capital globally and, and how we're susceptible and vulnerable to it, we almost miss the point of, of you know, we, we too put our finger in the dikes on this. Do you have a, um, something akin to a, a larger blueprint on how you get at an opioid crisis or a fentanyl crisis or a, a painkiller crisis and start to actually, well, turn it around, turn the ship around? The first thing I think we need to do um, is decriminalize drugs. Um, that means simply removing criminal penalties. Um, so, you know, if a cop sees you with a or catches you with a flap of cocaine in your pocket, um, you're no longer threatened with jail. Um, so, so it it doesn't it doesn't do a lot actually. It just removes criminal penalties. Uh -huh. And I say it's the first thing we should do because it's actually quite simple. Um, it's, it's one legislative change at the federal level that removes certain drugs from Canada's Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. So it could be done actually very quickly. Um, why I think it's so important is because it would, it would go a long way towards removing stigma. It would, it would bring drug use out of the shadows. You would remove this moral reprehens reprehensiveness that's attached to drugs right now that comes from them being criminal. So I think decriminalizing drugs would encourage people. So you don't think the opposite to, would occur? That it would become like a, uh, an opportunity for kind of a libertine society here. The one jurisdiction that has done this, Portugal, actually saw the opposite happen. They right. saw drug use decrease significantly. Mm. Um, I think because um, they brought, by removing criminal, criminal penalties, they removed fear. Uh, they brought people more into the open around drug use, and that allowed them to ask for help. Um, if they were no longer so ashamed, um, they were, they also didn't create a free-for-all. Um, if you get caught with drugs in Portugal, you are not given a free pass and allowed to continue with your flap of cocaine. You, you are directed to something called a, a dissuasion panel. Mm. Um, so there's no fear of criminal penalty. You're not going to go to jail. But you have to appear before this dissuasion panel and they offer you a few different roads of treatment. Um, Portugal didn't just decriminalize drugs. They they also made massive investments in the treatment system. Yeah. Um, they used to spend about 20% of their drug policy budget on treatment and about 80% on law enforcement. And they literally flipped those numbers. Now it's 20% on law enforcement, 80% on treatment. It sounds as if they made the assumption that I think our policymakers still haven't really quite made, which is that people actually do want help. I really think they do. Um a heroin addiction is not a fun thing, you know. It, it's it, it costs a for, it costs a fortune. Um, you know, it's interfered with your your life to a degree where you're not really in the job market anymore. So you're, but you you still have to sp come up with that money. So you're working like literally sixty hours a week, hustling, selling things on the street, shoplifting. Um, you wake up every single morning. You wake up in an intense anxiety attack. Where's that first fix coming from? Where's that every single morning? Hmm. Um, it's it's not a fun experience, and I, I don't think there's you know almost no one who wants to be stuck in that kind of long term addiction. So I do really think that people want help, but we've made it really difficult for them to get it. Even now, not much in on the treatment side. Well, nothing really on the treatment side has changed since the fentanyl crisis began. Hmm. Um, we've done all this harm reduction stuff. And part of the reason why is because harm reduction is so cheap. You can do harm reduction on a shoestring. 
Um, the first overdose prevention site in Vancouver that came up in, in September 2016 operated uh, via donations on a GoFundMe page, a couple volunteers. Yeah, I remember that. And they stole electricity from the bank next door with an extension cord. <laughs> and that's how, you know, And but, but it worked. Yeah. They reversed hundreds of overdoses. Nobody died. Um, that's how cheap it is to do effective harm reduction. Treatment is expensive. Yeah. I think, you know, Betty Ford or something like $30,000 a month. Um, it doesn't have to be that expensive, but treatment is expensive. So our government can do a lot with harm reduction with, without bothering taxpayers because they can do it with very little money. Um, the kind of investments that we need in treatment would not be in the hundreds of thousand dollars we we spend on harm reduction right now. It would be in the billions. Yeah. As much as we feel that we have a certain sophistication as a community around this issue, I mean, you've you've seen in recent times the the pushback on things like modular housing in the community, you know, the, the pushback on, uh, and, and there's certain pushback on decriminalization that's going on. What, where, what are the strategies around education on that? Do you think yeah. that will make people, um, uh, you know, um, how would I put it? Accepting. Yeah. You know, Canadians are funny. We're, we're so, um, Addiction is a disease. You've heard that before, right? If you ask 10 people, you know, get 10 people in a room, um, the, the nine out of 10 of them will agree addiction is a disease. Addiction is a disease. They'll all say that. Everybody will say that. We've you know, took a couple decades, but we got to that point where we consider addiction a disease. Everybody repeats it so often, but do we actually believe it? Do we actually treat addiction as a disease? If we did, there was no way that you would agree with a criminal penalty for drug use. If you actually understood what the words mean, addiction is a disease, you would not agree that we should criminalize and put people in jail for it. And yet nine out of 10 Canadians will say out loud, addiction is a disease. We've kind of collectively tricked the entire country into believing that we actually agree with this opinion that that, that our actions simply do not match. What's the truer sentence there? What is addiction, you think? Is it, it's a, uh, it's a, um, what? It's well, a, the it's a, it's a weakness. It's a it's a, a learning disability is actually sort of the new the, the new area where uh, the understanding of addiction is going. Yeah. There's a lot of really interesting research happening in the United States. But, but I mean, in terms of our own stigma, uh, the, the approach that we're taking that's, that's stigmatizing people, are we still uh, stuck yeah, in yeah. that still stuck in that period where the addiction is your responsibility? But, addiction is something you can do, but something about addiction is. You know, you, you need to take more personal responsibility. I think absolutely. We say addiction is a disease, but our actions show that we treat addiction as a moral failing, um, as a weakness, as something that should be penalized. Mm. Um, and, in, you know, until we can reconcile those two and begin to actually treat addiction as a healthcare issue, um, we're not going to solve this crisis. Okay. Well, take me then into the, what you were quickly alluding to there, which is the, the new thinking about it, the learning disability side. Yeah, there's a great book uh, by a guy named Mark Lewis. Um, that's, the name will come to me in a minute, but it, he he describes um, addiction as a as a um, as an issue of learning. He, he compares it to um, a pile of mud that water is dripping into, mm-hmm. and as the droplets fall, it begins to carve out grooves. And as more droplets fall, the grooves become deeper, thus collecting more of that water. That's kind of what happens in, in your brain with repeated drug use. You can do it a couple times and it won't really stick. But the more times you use a powerful drug like an opiate, um, the ruts get deeper and you know, easier to fall into. Um, so you need to begin to sort of train the brain out of that. And how you, you do not retrain the brain, how you do not respond to addiction, is by putting somebody in jail. Um, by increasing stress, um, by threatening them, you know, with police harassment and persecution and that sort of things, all those stressors um, make people want to use drugs more. Like that, you know, that's that's a large part of what drug use is—a response to sadness or depression or stress. So by throwing someone in jail and and sending police after them, well, what are you doing? You know, you're increasing their stress. Does our collective response on this one uh, breed any? cynicism in you about whether in fact we do want to address this um it did for a long time the last year or so i've seen a lot of reasons for optimism um 
I do believe that we are finally beginning to have an honest conversation about addiction and how to respond. And you see that in people like the leader of the federal NDP, Jagmeet Singh. He openly supports decriminalizing, that is, removing all criminal penalties for all drugs. Yeah. Um, you know, that he's a leader of a major federal party. That's never happened before. I respect who he is and I and, and respect what it is that he's leading, but he's kind of the what you would consider to be a, a typical source of where you would get that support. Um, the opposition, you mean? <laughs> or 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 someone who's who's positioned uh, to the left of center, right? Who who you would consider themselves to be quite progressive on that scale, right? Um, uh, an intriguing person, a more intriguing person um, is somebody I know a bit, Conrad Black. Yeah, who also says this is absurd. Yeah, and 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 you get people on the on, on a libertarian side as well, who are also saying we've we've spent crazily. You get a lot of very far right wing libertarians in, in favor of decriminalization. Yeah. Um. So it so it it does it does branch across the political spectrum. Um. Mayor Gregor Robertson recently came out in, in, in yeah. In, I mean, he's he's left of center as well, but yeah. you know, he's uh, but he's a leader of a city. Yeah, he's a leader, a leader of, of one of the city. largest cities in Canada. He's a significant. leader of a city, and and um, and yet I also see um, leader of the Conservative Party Andrew Scheer trying to stop the train on yeah. cannabis legalization, and that's where politics really begins to. Yeah. Okay. So you're of a, gener- a different generation than I am. Is it is it a generational push that's going to affect this change? A big piece of it is. Although, I mean, people. Shears more in your generation than in mine. I might point out. <laughs> um, which is a bit funny because you know people under thirty I talk to. I mean, the fact that marijuana is is illegal is just a joke to them. Like they just don't get it. They're like, why on earth this is. Like alcohol is so more, so much more destructive. Why was marijuana ever illegal? It doesn't even make sense to younger people anymore. Um, interestingly, you know, Justin Trudeau has come out um, strongly against decriminalization. Yeah. The question has been put to him over and over again yeah. over the last year. And what's going on there? I mean, his his, his father was one. Was I? I'd argue, you know, when he he instilled the Ladane Commission. Yeah. Um, that was that was a pretty provocative. Yeah, that was review. a recommendation to, re- to decriminalize drugs that came in the 1970s, was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's happening there is politics. Every argument that Justin Trudeau makes in favor of legalizing marijuana, um, remove it from the hands of criminals, uh, make it harder for children to get, uh, uh, make it safer by, by addressing, by regulating purity and that sort of things. Yeah. Those are his three big arguments. And all three of those arguments can 100% be applied to hard drugs as well. If we legalized and regulated, heavily regulated, which is what we're talking about with legalization, um, it would be harder for kids to get drugs. Couldn't go down to the corner anymore. Um, That would address the fentanyl problem. People would know uh, by going to a government store that they were actually getting heroin, which is significantly less dangerous than fentanyl. So all those arguments that Trudeau makes for legalization of marijuana could equally apply to hard drugs, but he can't make them because of politics. It's curious because, you know, your your book, goes up to a certain point, but, but uh, um, in more recent months, I think, as we, as we talked about at the top of this, uh, of this discussion, um, we're now all having friends who have had this experience in this community. In a lot of ways, that has um, taken some of the mystery mm-hmm. out of this phenomenon for us. And do you think that that is... I hate to say it, but do you think these these people are dying and that there's almost a purpose that will come about? No, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, change is often born of crises, and that's what we're seeing now. Um, it, it's very easy for someone to say drug users have to go to jail because drug use is bad. We all agree on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it makes do you think it, drug dealers need to go to jail? Uh, um, under a... Uh, most, at least low-level drug dealers, are just drug users themselves. Right. Um, they're, you know, they're not doing it to make money. Often they're paid in drugs. Hmm. Um, at the, so at the lower level, I would say no. I would consider them drug users. At the higher level, um, I would agree. We still have to send drug users to jail. You can't have organized crime you know, dealing heroin on the street. Um, 
but hopefully that would become a, a moot question after legalization because uh drug prices illegal drug prices are inflated so insanely because organized crime monopolizes the market they can set whatever price they want sure. if we legalized and regulated a 10 dollar flop of heroin would probably decrease to a price of even one or two dollars um so the illegal market would get stamped up pretty pretty quickly i think just by simple economics nobody would go to them anymore yeah although i can imagine listeners automatically going hey wait a minute then that makes it so accessible that makes it yeah. so easy to use that that then creates a whole other problem that we didn't anticipate yeah and and you, you know i i know what you're saying about portugal um but can you really guarantee that that would happen here that human behavior would be the same so, here so here i'll make a really important um point on portugal i'm not actually in favor of the portugal model for canada no. um decriminalization removing criminal penalties has worked very well for portugal but Portugal has never dealt with fentanyl. Por Portugal has never oh. had to respond to a poison drug supply like Canada is now. They don't have fentanyl in Portugal. Oh. If Canada decriminalized drugs, it would remove stigma and help people seek treatment, but it would leave the drug supply in the hands of organized crime, and it would leave fentanyl on the streets. So the Portugal model would not actually work for Canada. Uh, we would need to go one step further. We would need to decriminalize, and then we would need to legalize and regulate and bring supply under government. What do we do about fentanyl itself? Uh, again, um, you know, uh, Portugal flipped, as you say, the the amount of resources into twenty percent policing. Is that surely we have to do something about how it's being created and distributed? I understand the logic. Um, organized crime is killing people, and, and fentanyl is terrible, and we have to stop it. But we can't stop it. Um, people have always used illegal drugs. I think they always will. Um, you know, we can play whack-a-mole forever. We have with the war on drugs for 100 years, and we've never even slowed the drug supply. Mm. Um, so, I, I mean, so what, the, what, so the logic is so obvious. We have to take action against drug dealers. But if you get past the logic and really start critically thinking about the goal, um, after 100 years of the failed war on drugs, it might be time for something else. What, what do you think that something else is? Because it, uh, I, I've even heard our premier talk about um, the need to really get to the underlying areas of all of this. And obviously, there's a new ministry of addictions. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, the government is trying to apprehend the crisis in a different way and, and go about its, uh, its addressing of it in a different way. But getting at these root causes is what, in a lot of ways, terrifies people about uh, and I hate to go back to economics, the expense of treatment. Yeah, we have to be willing. I mean, if we're going to honestly talk about solutions, we have to talk about spending that kind of money, um, billions. Um, but it doesn't have to be billions in new money. There there are, you know, we can stop spending money on police. We, uh, we can stop sending police officers out to bust drug users so many of which are, as we've said, you know, victims of earlier abuse and struggling with with the health issue. Um, what can we do about fentanyl? I think if you if you, I think if you understand, if you accept two really basic facts, and I think they are facts: the first that people will always use drugs, and the second that BC's drug supply is now now so hopelessly polluted that people will continue to die. I think if you accept those very two basic points, we need to go to full legalization and regulation, bringing supply of opiates under government control and government regulation. And you mentioned un unintended, unintended consequences a minute ago. Uh, I agree. There are going to be unintended consequences, and advocates for legalization have to admit that and have to talk openly about it. Yeah, um, yeah, because I have to say their, their mantra is almost like a black and white mantra. Yeah, and that's not going to work when we really get to the the details of this conversation. Because no, people will get quite cynical and quite yeah. critical quite quite quickly if it doesn't appear to be going that way. So there will be new problems. Let's mm -hmm. be honest about that. But what legalization would do would almost, in, I think it would really entirely solve this problem of fentanyl. So while it would create new problems, it would solve this immediate problem of fentanyl. And that immediate problem right now is killing almost 1,500 people a year in BC. Yeah. So we, I think we're at a point where we need to deal with that immediate problem and then deal with unintended consequences when we get to them. What I wonder about too, I mean, is there's a whole other um, strata of uh, people who are suffering right now. 
and they're actually those with uh, some chronic pain. And I have many friends who say that their doctors now won't won't prescribe. Yeah, the, they, like the, they've they've gotten out of the business of prescribing painkillers because of the fear they have. This is becoming a, a huge issue. Though actually, the last big investigative piece I did for the Georgia Strait was on this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are in legitimate pain can no longer get painkillers, um, and when that happens, they don't stop feeling pain. They still seek ways to deal with it. So they're going into the underground. So they're going to the streets. Mm-hmm. And instead of finding the Oxycontin that they wanted from a doctor, or instead of even finding heroin, what they're finding is fentanyl. And that's killing many of them. Um, that's another unintended consequence. Um, that's become a huge problem. And in British Columbia, I want to be careful here, but localized to British Columbia, um, it's actually we've a problem we don't need to have. Across much of the United States... Um, the opiate crisis was driven by doctors, not all of it, but in some areas, uh, overprescribing uh, led people to get addicted. The doctors realized what they were doing was wrong, pulled the prescriptions back. And then, as you said, people went looking on the street and then what they found was heroin or fentanyl. That didn't actually happen anywhere near to the same extent in British Columbia. Doctors were overprescribing, but nowhere near to the same extent that they were in parts of the United States. But because we all watch CNN and because we all read the New York Times, we believe that BC doctors were doing this. Right. And so it's created a fear within the medical establishment in BC that you just talked about. Now that they feel they have to cut patients off because of the backlash that we've inflicted on them. No, they're fearing being responsible yeah. for, someone's, uh, for, for someone's horrible addiction. Yeah. So, so they're responding to a problem that was largely in other jurisdictions that, that, that they nevertheless received a backlash for here. And it's created this whole new problem of people in legitimate pain, not able to get the painkillers they need. Um, mm-hmm. This stuff is complicated and you need to be, we do need to be careful how we respond to it. So your, your book fighting for space um, has, has got a lot of accolade. Uh, it's, it's only been out for a number of months. If, um, if you had to have a do over, <laughs> what, what what have you learned since oh, what, I mean, what has even promoted the, promoting the book done in terms of changing what you what you know uh, yeah i'm still constantly rewriting that whole thing in my head as i go to bed every night <laughs> um you gotta, you gotta let it go i <laughs> know no. uh the response has been really encouraging uh yeah, last sure. month we took it to toronto montreal and ottawa and there were packed rooms in every city and after I did my little half-hour presentation uh, of the story in the book, um, another hour in every city of really good detailed questions. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we do what Vancouver did in the, in the 90s? How do we do that in Toronto? How do we do that in Montreal? Is that what mainly people are, are saying? Like they, they look at yeah. what you talk about in the book and say, how do we get a piece of that? That's the number one reaction of, of uh, mm. the most notable reaction I think I've had. Mm. Um, and not even just uh, in Canada. Um, the book's not out in the United States until June. But I, I've had a number of officials from City Hall in Philadelphia mm. call me and, and say, I somehow got a copy of your book. And we, you know, we want to do what you guys did in Vancouver. Uh, people in Boston. Um, people in Baltimore. Mm. Um, it, it's kind of, I didn't... Uh, I wrote it because I just I just couldn't believe that nobody had put the downtown east side story down in one place. But a lot of people have come back and said, this is like a guide. This is like a how-to. And, and so that's been a really encouraging reaction. How has it changed you? Um, has it changed me? Well, I suppose it's made me more of an advocate, inevitably. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a journalist, I uh, had always tried uh, to remain neutral in everything I write, but it's a bit different writing a book as opposed to writing for a newspaper. You're allowed to have much more of a voice. Yeah, sure. Um, and but, as, but we're also, we're, we've entered this age anyway of the, of the advocate journalist. Yeah. Right. We're, we're less uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I agree. I haven't received any criticism for the, you know, the, the really vocal positions now I've taken in favor of harm reduction and that sort of thing. Yeah. Do, do you do you keep a um in your own mind though a um a constant vigilance on your um on your own biases on this one to make sure that you you don't then appear to be perhaps even ideological and and not open to other other sentiments. Yeah, I, I try to. Um 
especially writing for the newspaper that I still do, right? Um, you know, I have to remember uh, that there's still a, a lot that people need to learn about addiction, that there's still a lot that people especially need to learn about harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, especially when writing about prescription heroin, for example, Vancouver has a small prescription heroin program, and that, that's a very radical idea that's never been done anywhere else in North America. Um, when I present that idea to to newspapers in other cities and when i write for an american paper for example um a huge chunk of every article goes to start warming people up uh, and explaining that you know people don't walk out of these facilities with their eyes glazed over and nodding off um it's interesting though and when i write for vancouver you know when when any reporter writes about an injection site in vancouver there's no voice in opposition anymore in any outlet really um vancouver really has gotten past that that point where you know you need when i ran for office in 2014 i had one question one question in an entire campaign yeah that you know somebody still a little disturbed by this yeah but everybody else was in fact this person you know when i answered the question i got applause and that as a way of shaming that person for (laughs) asking a question even in 2014 um one one last thing travis um so if you had to if you had to put your guesswork uh, into play here um, in 10 years time what does the situation look like well this might be a depressing point to end on the fentanyl crisis is going to get much worse uh, before mm. it gets better mm. um, fentanyl is easy to produce in traffic it's so potent that it, it's very easy to transport because you can transport it in minuscule amounts. Um, you can send it in a, a you know, plain letter in the mail yeah. and there's enough of it in there that you can run a business. And it's actually not that complicated to produce. You don't need a poppy field in Colombia. You can brew it in your basement or your trailer park. Um, and we've seen something like this happen before. In the early 2000s, we saw an explosion of methamphetamine use. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened when people figured out they could do this in their apartments. Uh, I'm very scared that we're going to see the same thing happen with fentanyl, um, and and you're going to see the numbers get a whole lot worse when the drug becomes as freely available as, as methamphetamine was in the early 2000s. Yeah. I, I, I wonder whether some of our own unaffordability in a community like this serves as a temptation to to bring yourself toward production. Um, yeah, I think uh, on the production side, well, yeah, I mean... As long as the drugs remain in the black market, it's going to attract people who want to make a few bucks that way. Yeah. Um, on on the demand side, I don't have as great concerns about uh, increasing use as these drugs become more available. I I, uh, I believe that most humans don't want to spend their whole lives high. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're kind of it's human nature to to desire to be productive. People like working forty hours a week, actually. Mm-hmm. Um. So, 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 you know, if we legalized, um, if, if, you know, we stamped the government's seal of a seal of uh, not approval, but, you know, regulation on drugs, uh, I'm not so worried that you would actually see a large increase in demand. Yeah. I'm mainly talking about production. But, um, listen, it's been a great conversation and, and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for having me. Travis Lupik. His book is Fighting for Space, How a Group of Drug Users Transformed a City's um, Struggle with Addiction. Thanks a lot for listening today to the BIB interview. I'm Kirk LaPointe. We'll see you again next time.